You're listening to iFanboys Talk Explode with Greg Rucka, author of Alpha, book one in the Jad Bell series. I left home at just 16, thought I'd have some fun. Hitched a ride on a diesel truck, headed for Washington. Yeah, I know what my papa meant when he told me heart to heart. Soon you'll find out soon enough that it's just an amusement park. You feel like a kid, you get so excited. You hang on tight with all your might as if your heart's ignited. That roller coaster, it's going faster. Hey everybody, you're listening to another talk explosive edition of iFanboys Talk Explode, and I will never use that tagline ever again. Um, thank you for that. I'm Paul Montgomery, and uh, this is this is Talk Explode, and this is uh, I think we're calling this the definitive Greg Rucka experience. I'm talking to Greg Rucka. Hey, Greg. Hello. How this are is you? this is at least the definitive Greg Rucka interview about the novel Alpha on iFanboy.com. We can say that much. I think that's safe. Yeah, that is safe. Um, we like to play it safe. And uh, yeah, so we're talking about this this book Alpha. It's now iFanboy comic book website, but we also we love comic people, and you're a comic person. And even though Alpha is not a comic book, it is it is a great book, and and uh, I've read it, and for. Uh, and I and I loved it. And for large chunks of this interview, I'm going to pretend that I haven't read it, so okay. I can ask questions. <laughs> so I'm just I'm playing dumb. I actually know the answers to some of these questions. But okay. uh, so this is this is a book from from Mulholland, which is uh, a great uh, imprint. Um, they do some great stuff. Daniel Woodrell books, and they have the Jim Thompson license to do those eBooks. They're it's a great label. So I was very excited a while back to hear that you were doing a series of novels about a character named Jad Bell. Mulholland. So how did how did that all come to pass? I'd been at Bantham prior. That that had been where I'd published uh, Queen and Country and, and the Kodiak novels. Mm-hmm. And I'd been there pretty much from the start. And it was clear some five books back that the relationship had soured. And I think we were all waiting for contract to end. Um, and at the same time, my literary agent, David Hale Smith, and I had been talking about possible places to go. And uh, so once I was out of contract, um, I spoke to John Schoenfelder, who was heading out the Mulholland line at that point. And it was a terrific conversation. I mean, we, we hit it off. So one of the first things we discussed was that I wanted to come in with something new. I wanted to try something else. And I think there, there were two pieces of alpha background that had sort of been percolating. The first was... Uh, the inordinate amount of research I did uh, for the the Batwoman uh, debut at DC Comics that ran in Detective with J.H. Williams, mm-hmm. um, and in particular, not only about Kate and Kate's military background, but also very much about her father. Um, sure, you know, Jake uh, is or or, or was um, you know a special special forces soldier, and I had always imagined him as probably a Delta. So I had compiled an awful lot of research on that, and it, it was it was sitting in my sort of back brain um, and, and playing around with my fascinations, you know, with regards to sort of that genre, for lack of a better phrase. And then the other part was that several years ago I had gotten um, not terribly drunk, but say reasonably inebriated with an <laughs> college friend in in a in a sushi restaurant and. At one point, and I don't remember why, but at one point, ended up 
doing the cliche of, you know, writing on a napkin. And we started listing on this napkin every single action cliche we could think of. Um, you know, I mean, beginning with has bought a boat, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or a bar, you know, uh, has partner of color, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, sexy, silent femme fatale, you know, um, just went down the line, divorced, of course, had to be divorced. Um, and that had been sort of playing in my head as well, because I had looked at that list of cliches and I'd been like, well, you know, there's a reason for all of these. Is there a way to sort of twist them or, 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 or play with them or, or do something, something different. Um, and, and one of the, one of the big cliches of course had been location, 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 you know, that action movies and action stories require fairly, you know, like, like, Movies like Die Hard, they lock down the location and they really exploit that location. So, and that that's something I've always been interested in. I love, I love environment as character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, the, the the idea sort of conflated, and 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 Schoenfelder and I were talking, and and I had some loose ideas for for Bell, and I had loose ideas for this plot that would take place at a Disneyland analog, and. John had uh, had some ideas that he threw out, um, basically dealing with a larger conspiracy idea. And I was like, well, maybe there's a way to marry these. And that's how we get Alpha. You know, Alpha is the first of a three-book cycle with, with Bell, um, which is not to say that there are only going to be three books. I, I'm, you know, there may well be books four, five, six, and seven. Uh, right now, there will be three, though. So, And I'm working on Bravo right now. Okay. And that's how, you know, that's sort of how it came about. It's it's really important that Bravo come out soon because there's a huge <laughs> cliffhanger at the end of, of one. I de- and we're going to try not to, to spoil this for anyone who's uh, uh, looking to find out more information about the book before they go pick it up. Um, but it's uh, there's a there's a cliffhanger at the end and it's it's definitely the first part in a, in a longer story. And, that, and that's, I think, really, really interesting. And so did you did you map it out as? As like, do you have an outline for all th- all three of the at least of this first sequence? Um, not nearly as good an outline as I probably should. <laughs> okay. I know where I'm going. Um, I know what I want. Uh, I, I know where I want the resolve to be. Um, Bravo was actually the one that was the most amorphous, uh, mostly because there are uh, not to give too much away, but there are casting elements and certain characters. Um, Certain people do not make it out of Alpha alive, mm-hmm. and 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 thus uh, uh, figuring out exactly where uh, the bridging piece was was the one that I think I spent the most time wrestling with. Oddly, though, Alpha was very hard for me to write, and it was hard for me to write for a whole slew of reasons. I mean, it, it is stylistically very different than prose that I've written before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the Kodiak novels are first person novels. Mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable writing first person. I enjoy it because I like, I like the deception of a first person narrative, uh, as both narrator and character. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that. Uh, I like playing with the reliability of the narrator. Um, third person limited, which is pretty much what all the Q and C novels have been. Um, are great for sort of suspense because you can jump, you, you can move your camera uh, metaphorically wherever you like. With Alpha, 
it's a third person limited, but it's also uh, in present tense, which I'd never done before. Uh, and which, frankly, I found uh, sometimes very precious. Not always, but when it's done poorly, I find it very off-putting. So I, just in terms of craft, I, I, I put myself in a very small room uh, and lock myself in and then said, get out. Um, so there was that. And then, you know, frankly, I was fried when I started Alpha. I, I had just charred myself um, working for DC as long as I had and was coming out of a, a place where it was actually very difficult to write at first. So Alpha took, um, I spent a lot of time on the plot and making sure everything worked. Bravo thus far has plotted very easily uh, and has been rather gleeful. I think one of the other things that held me up on Alpha is that there is, again, not to be too spoilery, there is a, for lack of a better phrase, a, a Blofeld-like villain <laughs> background. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I'm reticent to even use Blofeld as the example, uh, but is, it is that sense of, you know, most of my novels um, prior have been really very realistic. You know, I, I, I go nuts on my research. I try to be very, very careful uh, with plausibility issues and with elements of verisimilitude. When you introduce essentially a supervillain into primarily a realistic world. I mean, the plot of Alpha is plausible um, I, as opposed to being entirely implausible, I guess. You, you, it is a viable plot if you wanted to accomplish what these people wanted to accomplish. Well, I, I mean... I mean, if if your goal was to say this is this is what would happen if there was some kind of terror attack or so, something going on at an amusement park, I'm terrified to go to amusement parks now. So, just you, so, or, or, huh? or I do that. I just I, I think you've you've accomplished this thing <laughs> where now I am afraid of going to places where there are roller coasters and any kind of joy. Now um, I'm just I'm just afraid <laughs> that I, you should you should at least I, I at least want you to go with me and be able to you know you know keep everything in your sight lines and all that stuff. Let's let, let's sort of sp let's speak to the the plot here. It's it's um it's I mean and you've you've alluded to it. It's kind of a um. A high concept idea that it's the the way I describe it to people is that it's it is like Die Hard mixed with those episodes of Roseanne where they go to Disney World. Um, it's 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 a little bit like those things. Um, and it's and I, I'm curious if you are allowed to go to amusement parks now. Like if if there is any kind of file on you. Like if you you're on any oh, kind of list. I know there are files on me. In many places, okay. um, I suspect most of them are also annotated, as I suspect yours are, with you know a little asterisk that says it's okay. He's a writer, mm -hmm. um, you know, not a real threat. He just wishes he was. Um, but I mean, the, I, but I mean, the level of the level of you know realism and, and attention paid to it. I mean, did you did you go to amusement parks and like did you yeah. scout out things and say like that's exactly where I'd put a dirty bomb if no. I so chose to do so. Yeah, but writers play those games all the time. I mean, I, I was I was I was doing research for for Alpha every time I went to an amusement park over the last twenty years, and not realizing. And in the last five or six years, 
it's been much more active. And writing the Kodiak novels, you know, he's a character who specializes in personal protection and safety. So uh, there is an attendant need to understand how security works. So, you know, I would walk through Disneyland and I'd be trying to figure out what their security was. Uh, one of the beauties of a place like like Disneyland, well, I mean, really one of the glories of, of, of those sorts of theme parks is that you are paying admission to an illusion. And that illusion is complex and complete and very honed. Mm -hmm. So... The Disney, and I use Disney because they're the primary example, obviously, but, you know, the Disney experience is, is one that absolutely does not want you ever to see the, the machinery behind the illusion, which means that you will never see the surveillance cameras if they can help it. You will never see uh, who is officially security and who isn't. You will never see how the trash cans are empty. There is, there's a reason that everybody who works at Disneyland be they a custodian or a clerk or dressed up as Donald Duck, is called a cast member. You mm -hmm. are attending uh, and taking part in theater. So, yeah, you know, I haven't tried to go to Disneyland since the book came out. Um, we'll see if there will be a problem. Did you did you talk to anybody, like any of those people that play the characters or anything like that? Where, like, how did you get that information? I done. Uh, I did a couple interviews. I did a lot of reading, uh, and a lot of the reading I did, and I discovered this uh, a while ago. I discovered it when I started working on the Kodiak stuff. You have to be really good about separating uh, truth from fiction in 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 your research and resource material. There's a lot of disinformation out there, so. You know, I was reading books about the history of the park and the design of the park and articles about that. But I'm also reading books like Cast Member Confidential. You know, <laughs> the lurid expose about all the sex that's going on in Disney World. And, you know, the the uh, very vibrant queer community and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was that. And then, you know, I know a lot of guys who have done security and you know people who have been in the military. And I end up, and I, I've said this in so many interviews now, it's almost... Uh, it, it's almost as if I'm, 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 I'm on rewind and repeat, but I end up inevitably playing these games of uh, what I call, you know, just logical causality. If A is true and B is true, then it must follow that C is at least possible. So if you have a park that is seeing 50 to 60,000 people a day, mm -hmm. and if that park is an emblem of a huge portion of American culture that is exported to the world, it follows that that park is a target. Nothing has happened. It then follows that their security is very, very good, and they've got connections. And if you're talking about something that makes as much money as, say, ABC slash Disney does, they have government connections and they have government resources because the government has a vested in interest in making sure nothing happens. So then you walk up to the entrance to Disneyland, uh, specifically I'll use this example and they've got a bag check I am convinced that bag check is there to make sure that kids aren't sneaking booze in right. and so they can stop you long enough to, um, to, to, to run facial recognition or other biometrics on you uh, I, because you can't have metal detectors at that entrance you can't do it a false positive is going to back up 
how many people for how long mm. that the the security approach has to be much more akin to how l all runs security for their flights you know what i mean mm -hmm. so those are logical things do they use thermal imaging to determine if people are coming in with fevers of 102 i have no idea um does it make sense to me that in an age of bird flu and biological agents, you would want some means to easily screen on entry? Uh, yes, it does. Therefore, you know, I was talking to uh, my friend Jerry Henley, who's worked in security, he's, worked, he's been in the Army, and, you know, both of us were like, yeah, they've got to have some sort of thermal. Now, I don't know if that's true. Um, I, I have no idea. Uh, I also I also work on the premise that uh, what the technology that we are aware of in the mainstream is usually ten years out of date. Right. Right. So uh, the stuff that we hear about from the military, occasionally something leaks through that we're not supposed to know about yet. Mm. Um, but in the main, you know, they're, they're good at keeping secrets. So if you take the technology we know about and you refine it, you know, five years ahead, 10 years ahead, you can do some pretty specific things. Uh, do you, do you think, um, where do you, where do you fall in on the, the concept of, of Walt Disney being in cryo sleep somewhere? Oh no. I, no. I, I, I think, well, <laughs> it's not even it's not even a question it's no i mean you know for me the the entertainment value is he's he's not dead at all mm -hmm. <laughs> he's living somewhere and 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 hatching plots because we like disney as a villain i guess mm -hmm. but yeah no come on dead okay um, it, it's funny you know everybody i know and i suppose the problem inherent in this is that the source is part of the machine so they would have a vested interest in 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 perpetuating this, but keeping that mythology alive. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, everybody I ever talked to, I've got, you know, one of, one of, one of my dearest friends is in the state department and he and I had a conversation. Oh, a good. 10 years ago, it was shortly after nine 11. And we were talking about conspiracy theories and his response was, you know, the whole concept of a conspiracy theory is that people can keep a secret. And he says, and you look at the size of these conspiracies and he's like, it's impossible. Hmm. He says, government's a bureaucracy. And it's a bureaucracy like any other organization. He says it's full of incompetence and idiots as well as people who are passionate and brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it, don't, it doesn't take many idiots to, you know, to spill a big secret. So, but Talking about Wilsonville, which is your analog for uh, Disney World or Disneyland. Um, and I, and I, I thought it was, it's an interesting choice that um, it doesn't take the place of Disneyland or, or Disney World or, or Disney as an empire in the world of your book, there's still a Disney. This yeah, is that's... just, this is separate. You know, it's, it's, it's an, it's a competitor to that. Um, yeah. but you have, and this isn't giving that much away. It's early on in the book. You have a full chapter where you talk about the Wilsonville empire and mm -hmm. you basically, um, reverse engineered like a Disney kind of franchise in a way and yeah. created, you know, the Wil you know, Wilsonville and all of the characters and the different movies. And, and you rationalized how it grew out from, this, you know, uh, uh, two people and a dog, yeah. um, as their, their sort of Betsy and pooch and pooch, <laughs> um, and a great use of pooch in this book, but, um, but yeah, and, and, and then, you know, moved out to other franchises for other, for, you know, the growing, um, fan base, uh, mm -hmm. of those characters and, and of the, the evolving times. 
Um, what was what was that like? Sort of creating a, a multi-billion-dollar empire. That was so much fun. <laughs> it's fun to read. Uh, well, good. Um, you know, it's the, the Disney question was was an immediate one. I, to me, the book was not going to be believable if Disney did not exist as an entity within the world. Mm-hmm. So Wilsonville had to be its own entity, and it had to be just as believable. Um, a friend and, and, uh, and writer Eric Troutman put me in touch with uh, a gentleman named Sterling Hershey, who is an architect. And Sterling, it turns out, had done park design uh, as well as other maps. And he and I talked, and the map that you have at the beginning of the book uh, that shows Wilsonville, that's, that's Sterling's work with me going, no, no, I need a ride that does this, and I need tunnels here, and, and things like that. But that act of world building, I, I love that. I, I, I can cheerfully, you know, disappear down that rabbit hole for, for, for hours, if not days, if not weeks at a time. I have to stop myself. There's a casino, uh, there's a Vegas casino in Bravo. Uh, I cannot use a real casino for what I intend to do to this casino. Mm-hmm. I am creating a casino. I have had to come up with the theme for the casino. And I suspect I will be calling Mr. Hershey shortly and saying, so, hey, you want to do a casino floor plan? Um, and, and see if he bites at that. Uh, and and unlike uh, in Alpha, this is not, you know, most of the book, uh, most of the action in Alpha takes place in Wilsonville. So it was necessary for the story that Wilsonville be as complete and tactile an environment as possible, which meant you had to know the park lore. You had to know who the characters were. You had to know which characters were considered more important and which weren't. You had to, there's even park slang, you know, I think somewhere in Alpha, somebody refers to picking up a penny as, uh, as slang for having sex with a cast member in the park. Right, right. Um, right, named after one of the characters. Mm-hmm. And so all of that had to be, for me, for my purposes, I had to know all of it so I could figure out exactly how much of it I needed to be in the book. Um, for Bravo, you know, there are going to be a couple chapters set in and around this casino. It's not the heart of the action. But I feel compelled for the exact same reasons to make it as realistic a place as possible. Uh, and and it goes to that thing I was saying, you know, there's that element of that Blofeld character in the background. So to, you know, I, I never want to do anything that makes the reader put the book down and go, I, I don't believe it. He lost me. Um, I, you can buy more goodwill if you if you show the rivets over here, you know, on the wall, mm-hmm. and sometimes they will ignore the fact that that's a really cheap paint job over there. Uh, the irony, the irony is with that big bad in Alpha, and you know, and it's not giving, I think, a, a huge thing away to say that at the end of the book, the big bad is still out there. That's why there are three books in the series. Um, he reads at first, I think, like I said, like a Bond villain, but if you do the research, it's actually not. It's actually not, you know, crime is global mm-hmm. and the people who are surviving in it are the people who have learned how to stay hidden and untraceable in a world where, you know, the NSA routinely is grabbing every cell phone call and going through every email and they're not doing it by hand. They're not doing it by person, but they're screening for keywords. They're looking for things. 
And once you have a reason to look at someone, it is not that impossible to, you know, track. And it, it, there's a leverage. Uh, there's a leverage joke to be made in here. You know, I, I, I'm talking to John Rogers, and how many times has he said, you know, the, the shit we've uncovered, you know, right. you can't write about. Um, it is distressingly easy. Uh, and, uh, you know, th- these aren't cautionary tales. I just, I, 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 for my own purposes, want to, I want to work in a realm of plausibility. Uh, and I think that comes out of Queen and Country as much as out of the Kodiak novels, you know. It's just really wanting to tell the story in a believable fashion. And part of that believable fashion comes from building that world. How surprised do you think people would be to know like how much, just how much of this book is plausible. Because you, uh, you, were, you were talking earlier about how you you sort of you, you started from that point of of action movie cliches. But yeah. Maybe what's 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 the breakdown of? Um, I mean, is it is it just about saying yes, those things, some of those things are true, or is it is it a cocktail of those two things of of over the top action tropes and real world dangers and oh, yeah. possibilities? I, absolutely, the latter. Um, I think the fundamental plausibility of the plot falls down and there's a character who says so in the book. Says if you're going to do this, you would load up a truck with Anfo and drive it at the gates. Um, and you're going to get, you know, 300, 500 people dead and a lot of press. That's the way you do this. The thing that allows Alpha to survive in, in, in the realm of all the action cliches is that the goal is different. Um, it looks like one thing at the start, and it is, it is, in fact, something else. The interesting thing about looking at all those action cliches is that as I was, and maybe this says something about me as a writer, but as I got deeper and deeper into them, I found them more and more difficult to resist. Um, you know, I guess the saying is that every cliche is born in truth, and... There are certain moments in, in, in these type of stories that come about quite organically and logically, and then you find yourself in a place going, well, I've seen that a thousand times before. It was uh, a bigger, that was a bigger challenge. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm an avowed feminist when I write. Uh, you know, well, I'm an avowed feminist, period. It appears in my writing. Mm-hmm. Um I went through huge contortions justifying uh, the presence of Nuri in the book. Um, you know, these, these, this is a <laughs> Delta doesn't have women in it officially. Um, well, but Delta doesn't exist officially. So, <laughs> um, you know, so, and, and I been doing research for Bravo. I found, I was reading a book called the command and there's a reference to a JSOC past, group called bi right and being your military alphabet is bravo so i was like woohoo that is apparently entirely women uh under the special operations command and they are and the quote is something like they're specialized in asset acquisition uh interrogation and undercover work so there is an element of the joint special operations command that is women only and when i found that i was like woohoo just <laughs> you know i can get this in there but you know, the other women in Alpha, for instance, it's, it's, it's Bell's ex-wife and his daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the other 
primary women in it. And wow, was I working overtime to avoid devolving the cliche with them. There's a moment at the end where the antagonist uh, has a decision to make. And the first time I wrote it, I wrote it, uh, I wrote it lazily. I wrote it with the motivation that, and we've seen it a million times before. It's, it's the, if I can't have it, no one can revenge motive. And uh, I was talking to a friend about it and came to the conclusion that, you know, that, well, that is a great dramatic reason to do something, right? The, the, the spiteful revenge. Sure. It's not a human one. Mm. The human, the human motive when the chips are down is to survive. You want to live and you want to live to such an extent that you will deceive yourself willingly. If you think there's a chance you will do you, you'll clutch at any straw. And that ultimately, you know, that ultimately ended up being what I wrote, which, and it's a small thing. I don't think people would have looked at that and gone, oh, uh, he avoided a cliche there. But for <laughs> my purposes, I did. Um, so it's, it's interesting because I love the tropes and I love the genre. You know, Die Hard has to be one of my favorite movies ever. Mm. I, I love watching, you know, the quote unquote ordinary man in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, Bell is ordinary for what he is. The difference with that character to me, as compared to say Atticus or Tara, is that you know Tara is a walking train wreck. Um, she, you, you get near her, and, and buildings just fall into entropy and decay. She's brilliant at her job, and she stinks on ice at everything else. And <clears throat> Atticus has always been, uh, in many ways, a tale of a, 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 a of growth and learning. He, he he starts as a young man and he grows into a man over the course of the series. Jad is professionally at the apex of his skill set. He knows what to do and how to do it and when to do it. Uh, there is no doubt uh, about his training. His, his, his journey is almost complete, honestly. And I had actually on tour, I just got back, you know, I was talking to somebody in Austin pointed out that if you look at the strict definitions of protagonist and antagonist, Bell's the antagonist of the story. Hmm. Uh, you know, Gabriel is the, is the protagonist. Gabriel changes. Sure. Gabriel has a distinct beginning, middle and end to his journey. And, you know, Bell really doesn't. I mean, he really doesn't. He knows what to do and how to do it. He's got problems, you know, he has to come to terms with the fact that he and his ex-wife are really exes. Uh, and again, doing that without her being a harridan, uh, which is another cliche you need to dodge, right? Mm -hmm. uh, his communication issues and, 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 and fatherhood issues with his daughter, you know, her deafness in a way is a metaphor. You know, she doesn't listen to him and it's not because she's deaf. Um, it's because right. she's keen. Uh, well, this is just Act One, right? I mean, he doesn't have to go through a you know a complete sea change in in one book if it's you know if it's a series. That's exactly it, and I feel with him there's there's a lot more time for it. It's weird, um, you know. When when I wrote the first Kodiak novel, there was um, there there was no context for discussing growth like that. Right? So Atticus had to have a very clear journey. And with Jad, absolutely, the plan, there, there are three books in this. 
So he has to start where he is starting now. Where he ends uh, in Charlie is going to be a different place. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully I'll chart that journey successfully. Let's, let's, let's talk about Jad some more. Um, where did that, where did the name come from? I'm not familiar with anyone being named Jonathan that goes by Jad. Um, yeah, I did some digging. I, I well, I got Jad from Radiolab. I, I was thinking, cause that's the only Jad I know. And I, I love that's that show. Exactly where I got it. I, 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 I listen to those things over and over again, religiously. My kids listen to them. This is, this is commute. You know, we're in the car and, and the first thing in the morning, you know, as we're heading to school, do we have a new radio lab? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the best produced podcast out there. And I'm actually, I'm going to see them live later this month. They're doing oh, a little tour. So pretty are, excited about that. I am, I am so jealous. I miss them in Portland. <laughs> they had two nights in Portland and I missed them. Um, and, and it infuriates me. And I've heard nothing but good things about the live show. Cool. Uh, but yeah, if, 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 if anybody's listening to this and they have not heard Radio Lab, you are missing out big time. Big time, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's where I got Jad. Okay, and cool. I looked around, I was like, Jad. And, and I knew a Jad um, in college as well, uh, who was actually, I think he, he was called Jad, but I'm not sure what it was short for, for because okay. they else called him JD. So, and then, of course, you know, the special operations community, so they all have to have their 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 call signs as well. Um so yeah, that's that's where I. It's an homage to Radio Lab. Okay, that's okay. cool. I named, that's... Uh, I named other characters after members of the Portland Timbers, all of whom who have now <laughs> left the team. So you know, it's like, ah, you're kidding me. So this is the lasting tribute. This will this will last well into the future. And I think that'll be the painful reminder that we got rid of Cooper and he started to score. You know, so we'll see. <laughs> Well, so are so are there guys out there? Like, how far removed is this from reality that there would be a guy like this? Now he's grossly overqualified as an employee at a amusement park, I imagine, but um, intentionally so. But um, are are there guys out there like this that you know maybe we pass them on the street that have seen what he has seen and are able to do what he's able to do? Oh, I, I, I believe absolutely. Okay. Um, have you talked to any of them? Uh, well, the ones who do it don't talk about it. Okay. That's the trick. I, same friend of the State Department. I've talked about this before, too, but I love this story because it is so indicative to me. Um, my friend has served with the State Department in Bosnia. He's been in Haiti. He has been, he, he, he likes going to the hot spots. Okay. One of the things he was telling me, uh, at one point was that, you know, you would get, he would get back to DC and to rotate through the ops center and you'd get a call out of the blue from say a soldier that you had encountered on, you know, in one of these theaters. And he says, you know, and they call and they say, Hey, I'm in town. Let's go and get a couple of drinks. And you know, that means you're going to be out till four and you're going to be useless the next day at work. But you do it because when they are in town for that night, Mm-hmm. That is the only night they're there. And if you, and, and there is a chance they may never be through town again because the next place they go, they may not come back from, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about sitting down with one of these guys and they're drinking one night. And he said, So I was looking, uh, I was looking at the, you know, your file or some sort of report. And he said, It says you're a spec as a medic. And the soldier in question said, That is correct. <laughs> He looked at him pointedly and said, you're not a medic. And the response was, well, we're all specced as medic. And he says, uh, well, what is it you do? And after a 
long pause. The response was, well, let's say I can do it from about a mile away if there's no wind. <laughs> um, I've always felt that when Wolverine says, you know, I'm the best at what I do, <laughs> right. pretty, it's the worst line for him to say. Mm. Right? Because he is the best at what he does. And what he does isn't pretty. So you don't talk about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. You talk the walk. You know, you don't talk the talk. And my experiences with soldiers and, frankly, the few spies that I have known that I've known were spies, they, they, not even for security reasons. It's just it's stuff you carry deep. Mm-hmm. Never mind the legal issues of stuff being classified. Never mind the fact that, you know, there's just some stuff you don't talk about. You know, this is, this is internal. And, and in particular in the special operations community, the special forces community, that community is very tight-knit. Um, and even today with the prodigious leaks that have occurred, um, is, is a community that really values its privacy and its secrecy very highly. I firmly believe that, you know, we, you and I can talk about Delta, SEAL Team 6, getting Osama bin Laden. I guarantee you there's a whole other unit operational thing we know nothing about at this point because these are things that have become known. Delta is still, I believe to this day, unofficial, right? Nobody has acknowledged the, the existence of Detachment Delta. Mm-hmm. But, you know, David Mann and Sean Ryan did a show called The Unit where Eric L. Haney, one of the original members of Delta, you know, was an advisor, you know, and, 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 and wrote episodes. Uh, that's about as mainstream as you're going to get. The secret is open, which means it's not a secret. For the operational capacity to continue, there must be secrecy. Therefore, logical causality, <laughs> have Delta, we have SEAL Team 6, but there's SEAL Team 14, except it's not called SEAL Team 14. It's called something else entirely innocuous. Mm. These are the people you're never going to hear about for another 10, 15, 20 years. So there, so there are these units that are totally you know, underground and, and secret, and then there's other ones that are supposed to be secret, but they're sort of maybe for show, just so that they... I we know that there's something out there. Well, and... I don't think they're for show. I don't. I don't think it's as if you're going to the Universal Backlot and they painted, you know, they painted facades. Right. But I do think that there is a very quiet retasking, and I actually think there's another reason for that, which is, you know, the I started reading Rachel Maddow's Drift, which is, you know, as brilliant as everything else that woman mm-hmm. does, in my opinion. But it, it's funny because I'd found myself thinking along somewhat parallel lines as I'm reading, which is in particular the start of the global war on terror and the shift in, in, in military doctrine in the U.S., which has really shifted from conventional now to special forces warfare. You have to open up the ranks of the special forces. And the second you do that, your special forces are not as special as they once were. Um, there was a point where, you know, if you wanted to be a SEAL, maybe one out of, I don't know how many, say one out of 100,000 applicants could, could reasonably, uh, or, or one out of 100,000 citizens could reasonably expect to make it through training. It was probably much, uh, the numbers were probably far fewer who would be able to do it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But as you increase the tempo of the warfare, and the warfare tempo now being fought on a special 
forces front is very rapid, you accrue casualties and you need more forces, which means you need more teams. If you need more teams, you have to have more soldiers. And if you have more and to get those soldiers, you have to, by necessity, lower the standards somewhat to get the applicants mm -hmm. because otherwise they're all washing out. All right. So when you do that, you end up with different tiers. I mean, by definition, you're going to have those people who came in in the original guard and who are now, you know, if they're still serving, they are at the end of their operational life. You know, we're, we're on year 11, year 12, coming up uh, of this war. If you were, you know, a master sergeant of age 28, you're 40 now. Um, 40 is a little old to be a shooter. Um, that is, in fact, one of the things that's going on with Jad. He is, he is at the end. Um, he is not going to be able to be, he's not going to be able to go through the door that much longer. Uh, so if you have that drift in standards, then you, you either accept it, right. And acknowledge it and be like, okay, that's just the way it is. Or you find a way to keep that razor's edge. Um, it makes more sense to me that there is a smaller cadre of, you know, that seal element of that Delta element um, of that, S of that SAS element, though, I think less for the SAS because the SAS was never meant to be secret. What they do and how they do it is secret, but the, their existence is not. Um, you compensate for that. You create something else. And it's very easy to do that in a bureaucracy. It's very easy to, you know, we've got a line item here for, you know, uh, Fort Bragg waste management reappropriation solutions. Well, guess what Fort Bragg, you know, waste management reappropriation solutions really is. You know, it's the thing you haven't heard of. Mm -hmm. no. How do you meet spies? Um, you grow up. Uh, you grow up in, 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 in a town that is a hotbed of military and defense training, and you don't realize it as you're a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and you find out that, say, maybe one of the guys your dad worked with, the reason he left the, the firm is because he wanted to work for the company um, <laughs> and things like that. So spies find you. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, my brother uh, is not a spy. <laughs> my brother is a filmmaker in L.A., okay. but he, he also went to the Monterey Institute of International Studies to learn Japanese. He's fluent in Japanese. Um, the MIIS is attached to the DLI, the Defense Language Institute. Well, the DLI, you know, gets FBI agents coming through to learn Sicilian so they can, you know, in the 80s, so they could go to Italy and Sicily and work on the... Uh, uh, were they called the super trials? I want to say. Okay. You know, this is the, this is where you go. State department has its own language training in and around DC. Um, but the defense language Institute, it's in the title. You know? mm -hmm. This is where you send your soldiers and so on uh, and others to get your languages. And so my brother, you know, is at MIIS knew people who, you know, they left to go. You know, I'm learning Farsi. Guess why? You know, yeah. they, people who ended up in Langley and Bethesda. Um, some of the nicest compliments I've ever gotten about Queen and Country have been from people I've never met, passed along third hand. who said, yeah, you know, some of the people I work with, they, you're remarkably close. 
They say this is actually pretty close to what goes on. Interesting. Yeah, and kind of terrifying. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I would be very, very nervous of talking to anybody who came up to me and said, "Yes, I'm a spy. How can I help you?" I'd be like, "No, you're not." I, just, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a guy writing like fiction about spies where the spies don't think it's accurate, like, and they might, you know, hold a grudge or something, and they're being mis, you know, misrepresented. Well, and two things there. The first is that you, you got to figure your leeway is either you try to get it as right as possible or as over the top wrong as possible. So, you know. So at least it, you're consistent. It, exactly. And it's dismissed as amusement, you know. Right. But in particular, and you know, it, it's, I hope it's apparent in Alpha because Alpha, you know, I mean, for God's sakes, it's guys chasing guys in an amusement park, in a theme park. And, and some of the guys are dressed up as characters. You know, so you've got a giant dog running around with an HK MP5. That's silly. Okay, there's an element of silly, and you have to acknowledge that. So there was always a, a slight touch of satire, I think, to Alpha that that sort of flows beneath the the narrative in its own current. Well, it's... but that but 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 that said. And and going back to the detective comics research, and so you know, my my respect for the men and women who have stood up to serve uh, is enormous. Um, you know, my, my service is negligible uh, comparatively. I remember talking to Rick Burchett um, after 9-11. We were working on Huntress Cry for Blood. And both of us having, you know, a moment of crisis of faith. How can a Huntress story about, you know, with Batman matter at all? You know, is, how is this relevant at all? And the only solution we could find to it was that, you know what, somebody out there is going to be, you know, loading a weapon and putting themselves into the line of fire. And one of the joys in their life is going to a comic book store on Wednesday or getting the books from the PX. And if that means that we make sure the books are there, we make sure the books are there. Um, I don't ever want to fetishize, you know, I don't ever want to fetishize the role, but by the same token, I don't want to... Um, I certainly don't want to diminish it. Uh, you know, you, you well know, you know, the stories are about people and people are fallible, um, and they're flawed. And that's what frankly makes a story good. In my opinion. Do you, do you think about those, those men and women when you're, when you're writing these things? Um, I'm not sure how actively I would say I do, but I'm certainly aware uh, that I am, uh, I don't want to say representing isn't, isn't the right word. I'm trying to figure out what the word is. I am, I am, I am, I am rendering a portrayal, shall I say. Mm. Uh, it's the same reason why when I write cops, I tend to be very careful about my cops. You know, there are corrupt cops. They absolutely exist. Uh, but there was a while in the media there where every cop was corrupt. And it's like, you know what, for some people it's just a job and they're trying to do it the best they can. Um, you know, for many a soldier, it's not about being called to something higher. It is their job, but yet in doing their job, they are serving something higher and they are serving intangibles. Um, and they're sacrificing in many cases for intangibles. We can make them literal. We can say it's oil or it's our safety or it's our freedom, those things. But at a certain point, you are talking about preserving say the promise of a country you know its potential its future 
patriotism is a very slippery thing. And I tend to, you know, I, I don't trust zealotry ever on either side. I, it makes me very nervous. Uh, so you know, I, I want to be fair wherever I can. I guess that's the, I guess that's the route. I try to be fair. Okay. Shifting focus a little bit. You mentioned earlier, um, Jad's daughter is deaf. Yeah. Athena. Um, do, do you have any experience with that? Do you, do you know anyone who is deaf? Do you, or, or was that, what, what was the, what was the decision to. It's, it's funny. You know, my literary agent lives in Dallas. So I saw him uh, yesterday, you know, um, uh, before coming home and we were talking about Athena and I could not remember what had triggered it. I really don't know why I decided that Athena was deaf. My, I have an older sister uh, who has downs. So, uh, I, you know, I've grown up living with somebody with a disability, but to equate downs to deafness is, I mean, it's just, it's erroneous that they don't, they, they don't analog. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to a primary school in first, second and third grade that had a school for the deaf attached to it. And I remember being very young and finding, uh, I was shocked at how noisy they were. Um, I, I remember, and I was really young, I mean, first grade, but I can distinctly remember there being a frightening noise, and it was frightening. Um, and it makes perfect sense. You know, the vocalization, you don't hear it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think there was a fascination there. You know, I tried learning ASL at one point and was very bad at it. Um, I can so, do cactus, which is yeah. a very interesting word to do in I, sign language, but that's it. Yeah, and, and we, we, there are other little silly things that I've learned to be able to do. Our rabbi at our, at our shul has tried to do a sign language version of, of the Shema for years. And, um, oh, wow. And, and it turns out she's been doing it wrong. <laughs> so she's, but she's taught all of us to do it wrong, too. Is it like, do you have to do that like phonetically, for lack of a better oh. word, or is it? It's very much, you know, people of the book and they're quite literal signs for it. But, you know, when I started, when I realized, okay, Athena is deaf and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I like this because I like what it does for the character. I like the wrinkle it provides. And I remember thinking, I can't recall having read a book uh, like this where a character was deaf. Um, so I sort of reached out, you know, and started doing my research. And I think at one point I also threw out on Twitter, hey, anybody out there? know anything about ASL that I can talk to. And a fellow named Danny Perkins, who has been uh, a friend for years uh, and who I met through the Kodiak novels years ago, sends me an email that says, yeah, my, my wife's a teacher of the deaf. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> These people find you. It's like the spies. Well, it was, it was this book more than any other research kept turning me to people that I already knew, but didn't know these things about them. So I spent a lot of time talking to Dan and and his wife, Heather, and they were incredibly helpful. And I, you know, anything with Athena, I ran past them, they read it, Um, you know, and what Heather had to say about, in particular, you know, adolescent deaf kids was incredibly helpful and incredibly informative. And if Athena rings at all true, you know, it is, it is due to them. Um, that, and again, you're talking about wanting to represent well. Uh, you know, I, I was writing at some point, I was writing, you know, hearing impaired. 
Mm. And, you know, Heather said, don't, you know, she said, they hate it. It's not, they're not impaired. They're deaf. Mm. You know, you call them deaf. They're not hard of hearing. They're deaf. Um, and, and, and it took a while for, for me to actually get to a place where I didn't sort of trip on it when it was coming out of my mouth, you know, the deaf sounded so blunt. Um, and we saw, you know, talk about power of language. We soften it. They're hearing impaired. No, they're deaf. Mm. They're deaf. I was I was reading uh, the article that you wrote, and I believe it was, it was first on IO9, and it's it's on Mulholland's blog now uh, about writing strong female characters. And I didn't, I definitely didn't want to open with that because you get asked that a lot, and I and I agree, it's it's kind, it's a it's a strange question. And um, but so I was more interested in not talking about strong female characters, but but as as you've said, characters that are outside of your own experience. Um, so so I wanted to talk about that, and I, and it made me think of a quote and. Um, I'm going to pull this up here. This, uh, that, that show, uh, girls on HBO, um, by Lena Dunham. Um, she writes and directs and stars in it. Um, it's a Judd Apatow production. And anyways, um, it, it's, it's, it's a show about, uh, four girls basically in, uh, living in New York and, um, 20 somethings. And, um, there's been some controversy over it that she, um, is is not writing uh, characters of color. There aren't really. It's just it's for white girls basically. Uh-huh. And um, she was asked about that uh, at NPR. And I just want to read this this quote. I, I wrote the first season primarily by myself, and I co-wrote a few episodes. But I am a half Jew, half wasp, and I wrote two Jews and two wasps. Something I wanted to avoid was tokenism in casting. If I had one of the four girls, if, for example, she was African-American, I feel like not that the experience of an African-American girl and a white girl are drastically different, but there has to be specificity to that experience that I wasn't able to speak to. I really wrote the show from a gut level place and each character was a piece of me so uh, or based on someone close to me. And only later did I realize that it was for white girls. Um, and she was saying it's, it's, it's sort of an accident. And I, th- and I thought that was kind of interesting and i and I, I don't want to speak specifically to that show but the idea of tokenism and quotas and not saying that that's what's happening here with athena but what what are what are your thoughts on rounding out you know the ensemble of stories with characters that are outside of what's typical to people's experience or, or writing outside of your own experience well it's interesting because i think that that phrase what's typical of the experience is, is it's problematic. Any, yeah. Well, 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 to be more precise, we're saying what's typical of the dramatic experience. Mm. Um, I, okay, not to get heavy, <laughs> but regardless of the purported entertainment value of anything I create, mm-hmm. And, and I do hope to entertain that the goal is first and foremost as a storyteller to tell a story, but I believe in art and I believe that when you are creating stories, you are an artist and there are responsibilities that come with that. And you can try to ignore them all you like, but the fact of the matter is that if you're putting out work into the world, you are providing a view of the world. And you are offering an interpretation of the world, no matter how fictitious it is, right? So for a work to not respect the diversity of the world is problematic um, because we live in a very diverse world. And 
therefore, you know, one of the writer's jobs is to grant respect to those experiences. If you do not know something, your job is to find out enough to write it. Right? I don't know how to fly a plane. I'm, I've got a friend, Neil Bailey, is working on a novel right now. He's never flown a plane. I don't think he's ever been inside a private plane. His main character flies a plane. And I was reading some of his stuff today, and it's convincing to me. You know, he knows his terminology, and he's done the research, and I believe this character is a pilot. Right? Now, a pilot may read it and be like, this guy's not a pilot. And that's fine. You know, hopefully he, he will dodge that bullet should that bullet come his way. But he has exercised his responsibility to the material. Um, you know, Athena came about, I think, like I said, it's hard to remember, but I honestly think my thought had been, I have never seen a character like this uh, in my, my limited experience. Uh, I've never seen a character like this. I want to do that. I think that's an interesting point of view. It would be a very interesting point of view to write this character without her being able to hear anything and having to rely on these other means to uh, perceive and to convey the experiences around her. Uh, the second I decided to do it, I feel very strongly it was incumbent upon me to do it as responsibly as possible. Uh, otherwise, there was no point in doing it. And, and, and that extends all the way to the fact that, you know, I'm a guy. So if I'm going to write a female character, I want to at least acknowledge that I'm a guy and the character is not. And that may perhaps influence the portrayal so perhaps i should be on guard for that perhaps i should try to educate myself or at least be considerate about what i'm saying by the same you know the same token if i'm writing you know this character is black this character is asian this character is latino this character is queer this character is straight this character is catholic this character is a junkie um you want to you you want to you want the emotional honesty that will draw a reader in and I think that one of the main ways we get that emotional honesty is by being honest in the experience. In, in, the, in the event that the writing of that kind of character outside of your experience that you've researched to, to write well, in, in the event that that character is, is perceived as less than authentic, mm -hmm. um, i.e. I, if a writer fails in that regard um, to, to write an authentic character outside of his own experience, her, her own experience, um, is the dam is the damage just to the writer themselves and their their reputation, or is there or is there any concern that that misinformation is harmful to anyone oh, or any group of people? I think it absolutely is. I think that you know I'm look I'm uh, I am fortunate in that I get to write for a living, but I'm you know I'm I am. By no means, you know, nobody's going to mistake me for a household name, right? My words have a limited effect. Um, you know, John Grisham has a much bigger audience. And he's reaching a lot of people. And, you know, to, to steal the Spider-Man line with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. I think, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't mean you can't have black gang members in your story. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, because that would be denying our reality as well. But, you know, the, the, it, was it Hollywood Shuffle? You know, <laughs> where you're watching, you know, 
a portrayal of the black gangbangers as written by, you know, the Jewish accountant. And it's like, okay, when, when the stereotype and the cliche persists, all that does is reinforce it. You don't gain understanding. You don't provide new articulation. You do not provide any new ways to articulate um, what's going on. Uh, and, and I think that that's a disservice. You know, we're looking at this big brouhaha, you know, well, big. As a stuff in the comics community is, 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 is big in the community and then gets blown out of proportion as a result. But you look at the Green Lantern stuff this last week. Oh, right? that, was, that was my whole Friday. Yeah, <laughs> that was, uh, I know not, not, a, not a huge dent in the world at large, but uh, when That's you're writing it. about comics, that is, oh, this is what my day's about. Yeah. I mean, the, the world continued to turn, guys. Yeah. You know? So look, the, the portrayal of Alan Scott is, is now going to matter more mm-hmm. right and that's not to say that he's got to be written differently but you know james james knows what he's doing and he knows what he is working with and people are now going to be watching and you know it was the same thing with kate and and much of the same um i think much of the same If, you know, uh, Tempest in a teacup. Oh, this is tokenism. Oh, this is being done for all the wrong reasons and so on. You know what? Even if they're being done for the wrong reasons, quote unquote, which, you know, I would argue the wrong reason would be solely for commercial gain, mm. right? And I say that somewhat sarcastically because the whole purpose of a publisher like DC is to make money. Mm-hmm. So doing it for commercial gain is entirely in their wheelhouse, Right doesn't change the fact that now that they have committed to the act, the act needs to be done well uh, because there's damage that can be done if it's not. Um, And there's an opportunity to do some social good if, if it's done well. Um, In many cases, yeah, you end up preaching to the choir, but you know what? Understanding uh, and, 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 and empathy and, and, and overcoming um, ignorance, bigotry, and bias is done one person at a time. It's not done in one fell swoop. Mm. This is why I got really cheesed when people, you know, in particular, a lot of liberals I know got really angry at President Obama for coming out and saying, you know what, I support gay marriage. I have evolved my position to this point. And people are like, oh, you know, and it's like, okay, yes, I understand being angry that it took this long. I understand that he felt he had to evolve to it. But that's how we change our ideas. Mm-hmm. Our ideas grow and change. And if we do not allow them to do that, um, we become the worst kind of small C conservative. You know, we become reactionary. And we as a species are not a reactionary species. Um, we are not hardwired to be, we're hardwired to evolve. So, yeah, I think that there's incredible power in it. You know, I, I'm trying to think of a good example, um, and, and, and a potential failing, you know, if we had known that Dumbledore was queer as of book three, mm-hmm. I think there's an entire generation that grew up on those books, an entire generation that grew up. on Absolutely. Those books. And if it had been on the page and known when people were standing in line to get the book at midnight, you know, those are people who love these books 
and would therefore be able to take that, you know, this is something in the thing I love. Do I now not love it? Right? Mm-hmm. No, I still love it. Well, then maybe this thing I'm scared of or that I don't understand isn't so scary or so inexplicable. To, uh, to position that at like, and like you said, like book three, to make it be a turning point where there's, there's, I'm in, I'm invested in this. Yes, absolutely. And, and there's no turning back. And, you know, and then I have to confront this. Yeah. Somebody who's 12 or 13 or 14 is reading that one another 20, 25. Mm-hmm. And this is part of their worldview. You know, that is, that is an awesome power. Now, not a lot of people can wield it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not going after Rowling, you know, I'm just saying that to me, that that's, a, that to me is a very potent illustration of what you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what's, what's more, um, intimidating to you getting that kind of stuff right like uh, a group of people or writing you know a, a gay character in 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 batwoman or getting the military stuff right and getting the authenticity of the tactics and everything all of it all, all of it all, yeah they're equal you know I, I i i've been wrestling with stuff in bravo right now and frankly and it's a silly thing it is a minor thing and i know it's a minor thing i'm wrestling with the rank of a character Right. Mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with a rank of the character um, and, and because it is a non it's not one of the more common ones they, they are a chief warrant officer right? so they are basically an NCO'd officer they're not an officer but they're not NCO right? Okay. and I'm trying to figure out okay so how's this protocol going to work and in what situations does this rank matter and what situations does it not and is this even plausible um it's, it, 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 only people who will know I've gotten it wrong are going to be people who have been in the army. You know? Have you ever had to demote a character before? Like, do you get through a story and you're like, no, wait, that, and then you have to do like a search and replace and demote somebody or promote somebody? Oh, yes. <laughs> well, or, or, or discover that my distances were wrong because the map I was working off of, I didn't actually take a good look at the scale before I started writing. Yeah. I did that in private wars. I, I, I took all of downtown Tashkent, which I thought, you know, I had all this room and discovered the map I'd been working with was like one, you know, quarter inch equals 10 feet. And I was like, oh, no, you know, I have to getting in a car and driving. And 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 then I have the argument with myself. Going, all right. How many people who are going to read this book have been to Tashkent um, and, and will care? That's a that's a Tolkien thing. There's a story that he wrote you know, a section of, you know, one of the books of the Lord of the Rings or whatever. And, and he had, it was, you know, it was a full moon. And then he went back and had to rewrite a whole section because his, you know, Middle Earth, his whatever world that he created, it wouldn't have been a full moon on that day. So he had to rework the whole passage and, 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 you know, and, and reading Alpha, there's a section where you talk about, they're trying to get through the park and get from one section to another. And uh-huh. if, you know, they said, you know, if there were people in there or if, okay, there was n- nobody in the park because it's, it's, it's evacuated at this point. It would take four minutes. It would take three times as long, four times as long if, you know, there were a full. And yeah. I was like, how do you, like, how do you figure that stuff out? And, um, yeah, you, you look at your map and you try to, you, you know, what you end up doing is you, you, you'd make your best guess and you remember how hard it is to go from say main street, Disneyland to, you know, Frontierland in a hurry uh-huh. on a busy, on a busy summer, summer afternoon. And you realize you can't do it in a hurry. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, it's going to take 15 minutes, maybe 10. 
But you're yeah. you're you're guesstimating though. You didn't have like a stopwatch or something no. like no. in Disney. Okay. No, but you see, but but you accept those numbers because prior to that, everything else has been ideally well constructed enough and and plausibly constructed enough that you go, yeah, you know what? That I believe it. Mm-hmm. I absolutely believe it. You know, talk about going back to theme parks. Talk about feats of you know engineering and, and 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 engineering crowds and the way you are moved and frankly manipulated as you move through a park it fascinates me you know where does the path narrow where does it widen you know which way is it bending and why um you know the entry to disneyland is forced perspective you know you you, you walk in and as you are entering to go under where the train runs the perspective as you enter makes that tunnel shorter. As you leave, it's longer. Right? You don't want to leave Disneyland. Mm. It's harder to leave Disneyland than it is to enter the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> so, and you and you had to think of all that stuff in creating Wilsonville, and that I don't know that you don't have any dioramas or anything. Like you just you just did a map, like. Yeah, and I've got a, a Scrivener file like full of all the characters and areas and design and history and stuff. I, uh, that tends to be how I do world building now is I'll make a, a Scrivener document for the world and we'll, uh, and then just proceed to fill it up with everything I can. I know, I, I know the answer to this, but does it ever get dangerous with research and how much research <laughs> you're doing versus you know, the actual composing of a story? Oh, yeah. You know, absolutely, because... Frankly, research becomes safe. Um, you don't, you, you don't, you're not exposing yourself when you're doing research. And when you're writing, you're, you're, you end up rendering yourself raw. You know, if you're going you're gonna to make it matter. Um, research is always nice to hide behind and to dive into. Uh, I think, I don't know, I think I'm pretty healthy about it. I think the, the, I think the turning point was I wrote a Kodiak novel called Shooting at Midnight, which mm-hmm. is actually about Bridget. And I did a lot of talking to the DEA um, for that book. Um, and <clears throat> it was it was during that research that I sort of had a moment where I was like, I could do this for another year and a half and I can never write a word. Um I think that uh, one of my own instincts is I get impatient after a while. I want to start telling the story. So uh, I will be consuming more and more research, but there will be an itch that will start being like, come on, come on, come on, let's write it, let's write it, let's write it, let's do it. Um, and <clears throat> that ultimately tends to be the governor on it. Uh, and I find that I don't have to have completed research. So, for instance, I will start on something I will write, and then I will get myself into a situation where it's like, well, I know nothing about this. I'm going to need critical space is a great example. You know, I finished the first part of critical space, really thinking that the book was going to end up being one thing. And I got to the end of part one and I realized it's something else entirely and ended up having to take two weeks off to, uh, you know, watch the organ ballet rehearse and you know, just do all that research and talk to people for the next section. Um, and that, that kind of research actually for me, I think may be the best because at that point, it's not only driven by curiosity, but it's driven by passion. 
you know, I've got to find this out so I can get back to the story. And as I find out more, I go, oh, I can use that or that. I didn't know the story can go this way now. And I find that, uh, I find that remarkably energizing, honestly. Um, where did you, or when did you decide that you would use this, uh, Rashomon style of, um, structure really like throughout the book, there's a number of events that are retold from different perspectives. So mm-hmm. each chapter, it though you're writing in third person, you're writing from the perspective basically of, um, one of the characters and, and what's it, even though, you know, you, you get, you get more play out of voice in, in first person, obviously in third person in the Athena chapters, it's, they're still written differently than mm-hmm. the Jad chapters or the Gabriel chapters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's ideally a, a, a clear voice for each or the Uzbeks chapters for, for that matter. Um, which are always vaguely contemptuous, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is, I th- is that something? Is that something? I get the question. I guess the question is: Is that something that you you stumbled upon in writing it, or at the you know onset of it? Did you say I want to write from different perspectives? Oh no, I knew I knew that to structure for, the only way I can think to put it is to structure the suspense of of the story. I was going to need to. Um, need to be able to rotate POV. Okay. Um, that was the only decision I had made. Everything else came about very organically. Um, I didn't sit down and go, okay, this voice is like this. Um, uh, it was a matter of uh, basically stealing a page from the way I'd written a lot of the Q&C novels. You know, saying, okay, we need to be able to move our point of view around so we can see what's going on elsewhere, and we need to be able to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm very... I'm, I'm fairly savage about point of view. Um, I, I get very annoyed when point of view shifts um, in the in the middle of, of chapters or even paragraphs, which is not to say it goes from third person to first person, but it is to say if I'm writing from Athena's POV in third person, it is Athena's POV. It's what she sees and what she perceives and her experiences. I do not in the middle of her chapter then jump to Dana's POV. Mm-hmm. Um, it... it and and I get annoyed by that. I think a lot of writers use third person as an excuse to not honor point of view. There is point of view in third person limited omniscient. You are limited to the person's point of view. Mm-hmm. The camera is on that character's shoulders. So I, I I do put a lot of effort into that. And I think at this point in my career, it, uh, the result of that effort is that uh, it is very instinctive Um that voice alters as a result. Um, that voice changes to, I don't want to say accommodate, but perhaps fit the, the subject of, of that particular point of view at any given time. Mm. I think it's, I, th- I thought it was really effective in, and I, and I, I don't want to spoil it in later parts of the, of the book um, where you do see a, a particular event, particular event. Um, that's, yeah, from three different... that's very explosive. And you see it from three different, angles and you get certain it's like you're um you're rationing out information from yes. that event in a certain way and that's there's a lot of tension in that and um so i i very much appreciated that as a as a reader um that's that's terrific to hear because actually that the the, the sequence we're talking about gave me fits gave me fits 
Um, and I actually got to a point where I was afraid I was being too repetitious, you know, that I was like, Not they've seen this before. Um, and wanting to make sure that I, I'm glad I dodged that bullet, uh, figuratively and literally, mm. I guess there. No, because that de- definitely, because there, it's sort of like, um, there are, there are blanks or voids in the story from one person's perspective and, once I saw that there was another one, another, you know, the next chapter was relating the same events, it fills in those gaps. And I realized there's still a couple of gaps left. So maybe there's going to be a third. Yep, there's a third chapter that fills in everything. And then you have the full picture. And it's, I don't know, it's sort of like, it's like, you know, 3D glasses. It's the blue and the red and it fills in everything. And yeah, you, so you, you get everything completed. So I thought, I, thought, I thought it was great. And people who haven't read the book are like, what the hell are they talking about? Yeah, um, it. Skip ahead to minute, you know, one seventeen. Exactly. Know, so yeah, so we've been, we've been talking for a while. So I want to let you get back yeah. to your writing, but uh, I really appreciated um, you're taking the time to talk to us. Oh man, uh, it, my pleasure. Honestly, was delighted you asked me. I've been uh, <laughs> if, if this is uh, the opportunity to get to talk to you, I'll take it. Excellent. So, so um, everybody, go check out Alpha. And I'd also I'd be remiss to not mention the great work you're doing on Punisher. Um, I I left space for one question about Punisher. Okay, and then, um, then I'm going to pimp Lady Saber too. Excellent, okay. excellent. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about let's talk about the Punisher having a beard. Yeah, uh, it was initially to indicate that time had passed, and it's difficult to shave well when you are unable to use one of your eyes. And uh, and and uh, a, a certain party at, at Marvel social media made it clear that she felt that beard was a good look and should stay for a while. <laughs> And the thing was, you know, Marco, Marco had these great design sketches he keeps sending me, and he kept doing the beard and the eye patch. I was like, "That's awesome!" And it wasn't until literally around issue seven where I realized, "Oh, it, it looks like Solid Snake." Okay, I get it now. I did not, I did not make the Metal Gear Solid connection until mm-hmm. uh, quite late. The beard is uh, is coming to the end of its time. Oh. It, it sadly will be will, will be no more soon enough. I was hoping there'd be like he'd, he'd braid it a little bit, yeah, just like completely yeah. embrace having facial hair. But it gets it gets nightly it gets nicely trimmed in um uh, for Punisher thirteen. So okay, cool. Yeah, he, and he, uh, and he wears a tux. It's the James Bond issue. Nice done Punisher style. So. Okay, and the webcomic. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, Lady Saber and the Pirates of the Ineffable Ether that I've been doing with uh, Rick Burchett and uh, Eric Newsom. We're coming up on our first year anniversary. We just finished our fifth chapter. So we're taking a little hiatus before we come back. Uh, it's a good time for people to, to catch up. And frankly, we're still trying to figure out what we're going to do about our first trade. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, if we're going to try to do it through Kickstarter or if we're going to... Maybe sidle up to some publisher and show them a little lag and say, "Hey, baby, want to publish this?" Um, or something <laughs> like that. So uh, it is, it is a uh, ongoing concern, uh, and frankly, you know, community input there is welcome. I'd be very curious what people would like to see and what they'd be willing to spend their hard-earned money on, especially you know in this day and age. So that's at www.lady-saber s a b r e dot com or you can find it at ineffable ether all one word and ether is spelled a-e-t-h-e-r dot com oh and there's voicemail nicely time nicely time okay great uh well thank you so much and uh get back to 
the next book in the Jad Bell series because I, yes. I really need to know what happens next because I was like, that's it. I need to know more. I need that's a very mean place to stop in the story. Oh, oh I don't think so. It's, it's merciless, but uh, it's not as if I had somebody hanging from you know the rigging or something. I mean, you know. <sighs> okay. Yep. All right, that's, we'll leave it there. All right, back to work. Okay. <laughs> yeah, down, all around like a-